0: Live from the gleaming, streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, our fact checker Mark C.G. Boyer is here, Christopher Cunningham, and on the phone, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., celebrating the anniversary of the arrest of Richard Ramirez. The Night Stalker.
1: Thirty-fifth anniversary of uh, his arrest. Actually, it, it happened a couple. Thirty-fifth anniversary plus a couple weeks, but
0: well, that's um, close that enough for it. government work. That guy was yeah. a real ass, you know. In, c- in case you didn't know, uh, you probably know more about the uh, Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, than most people because you, being a a true journalist, you probably covered this story.
1: Well, it was around that summer, that's for sure. And it was, one, it was uh, to this day, it remains the scariest summer in Los Angeles. Um, you know, there was uh, no real clue who, who the Night Stalker was, uh, and his victims were chosen completely at random. Um, and, you know, you know, it's been hot lately, and you sleep with the windows open. Well, that was one of those blistering summers that I'm sure uh, Mark C.G. Boyer probably remembers that nobody in L.A. Stuff with their windows yeah, up. Uh, yeah. You know, um, summer of 85, uh, Richard Ramirez was uh, kind of a drifter. He, he grew up in El Paso, Texas, and, um, you know, as a young adult, mid-twenties, came out to L.A., um, and uh, he came out to L.A. via the Greyhound bus, yeah. the way a lot of people came here, and stayed at the, uh, you know, world-famous Hotel Cecil, which he probably oh was yes. right there. Yeah. Sixth so in Maine in L.A.
0: <laughs> I almost wrote a book Uh-oh. about the Hotel Cecil. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah.
1: Well, it's uh, it's worthy of a book. Uh, he, he lived there. Um,
0: Didn't another serial killer live there, too?
1: There's, uh, quite yeah. A, a, guy that, enough, a guy that wanted to duplicate Richard Ramirez's crime story. A lofty goal. Um, like I say, Ramirez grew um Mexican-American family, grew up in El Paso. Um, he witnessed... Uh, his cousin uh, shooting. His cousin was a Vietnam vet, and uh, a kind of messed up Vietnam vet. When he came back, <laughs> he, uh, you think <laughs> he had a porf- he had a portfolio of photos that he had taken of uh, Vietnamese women that he mutilated, oh, God. raped, or mutilated and raped. And Richie, as a young kid, you know, 10, 11, 12, uh, was uh, shown these these photos, and. Um, you know, that's about the same time that he's going through puberty, and, um, you know, psychologists think it probably um, had some effect on him. And later on, uh, he Richard would witness his cousin, uh, shoot his wife oh my God. in the face. This is at about the age of 12 or 13.
2: Now, that stuff's got to make um, an impression. Um, <clears throat> I think it's fascinating, Frank. Um that his, his cousin uh, got off on, uh, you know, insanity plea. And he never did any uh, time for his crimes in Vietnam or here.
1: Nope, he never did. And, uh, and, of course, you know, part of the... Richard never testified against him either. So, uh, he, you know, that raised his, his stature um, among the cousins who continued to, you know, wield some influence over.
0: You know, that's really interesting about the, the cousin showing Richard those pictures of the women he mutilated and raped at that tender age, which is bound to make an incredible negative or twisted impression on
2: the kid. Yeah, well, he also, uh, he also taught him, um, tech, you know, uh, stealth uh, stalking techniques. I mean, it, from, from a, reading this the material... Cousin
1: a, the cousin was a green beret.
2: Yeah. So he yeah, knew and all that stuff. And he,
1: had, he knew all that stuff, and he taught Richard how to, how to do it.
2: And it seems from, you know, reading about the family, they all seem to be a bit screwed up. We've talked about this many times on the show before, but the uh, childhood abuse that he, his father meted on him and the repeated head injuries... Um have uh, a profound effect on the development of an individual and the psychopathic tendencies
0: well yeah especially if uh, i mean there's two ways to be a psychopath one you're either born missing that emotion chip or you have had a significant brain injury coupled with emotional sexual or physical abuse and that's what we have in this case yeah, so there's your perfect recipe for a psychopath.
1: So it's like nature, it, it nature. Perfect, perfect storm. And then, you know, add in the, the, you know, the, the Vietnam War stuff, you add in these Polaroids of these Asian women being abused. And it's probably, you know, no great surprise that Richard's first victim is a young Asian girl.
2: And then you, you, you add that when he, he tried to get away from his father and moved in with his sister... Uh, her husband was a stalker and peeping tom. Oh, great! And wow. would take him out on his escapade. Jesus! Oh, the whole family screwed up. Well, that's what I said. I always thought it was interesting when two uh, people get
3: together and decide, "Hey,
2: let's go uh, do some
3: serial killing uh, together." You
1: know, you the- this is a bad connection.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, he would see we can fix that. All right, if not, we can come over here.
1: Yeah, one or the other.
2: One or the other. I'll bring him over. So, here. um, <clears throat> so you were working for the Pasadena Star News?
1: Not, no, At that time, I wasn't actually. I wasn't a journalist at that time. Oh, you were okay. I, I, I actually didn't become a journalist until a couple of years after the arrest. Um, I was around for his trial, and um subsequently became really good friends, I guess, with uh, a couple of the detectives and actually the one that figured out who this was and have uh, done a lot of documentation on the, on the story from the perspective of the detectives and actually from the perspective of many of the surviving victims too. Most of these crimes took place in the San Gabriel Valley and the majority of my career as a journalist was in the San Gabriel Valley with uh, the San Gabriel Valley Tribune and the Pomona. Uh, the Pomona. How did they
3: narrow in on him as a potential suspect?
1: Well, it's, a, it's quite a tale. So, um, you know, over the course of the summer of 85, there were several home invasion uh, robberies and murders, uh, and these were gruesome. Many of the instances, you know, the, the victims were mutilated there were, you know, satanic symbols left at some of the crime scenes. And there was not a lot of, you know, really good physical evidence. There was was a couple of things, though. One, surviving victims gave a pretty consistent story of his look. And uh, it was, you know, a dirty guy with smelly breath who had kind of longish, curly hair. Um, And... That, you know, from that, they were the police were able to come up with a composite drawing. That, by the way, if you talk to any of the kids who grew up here at that time, scared the hell out of them. Filed his teeth, for example, into sharpened, like,
2: uh, oh, fangs. Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, he got them fixed before his trial. That was interesting. Yeah, he did. How come
0: there were survivors? I mean, didn't he have the serial killer sense to kill them?
1: Well, I mean... You know, it, I tell you, like, in one case, one of the early, early cases, is he he's stalking a house in, in Rosemead, California, um, and uh, there's two women that live in this house. Uh, Dale, um, gosh, I can't remember Dale's last name. Dale Onizaki, um, she's actually an Asian woman, and her roommate, um, who's a Hispanic woman. Uh, so he, Ramirez goes into the house, and he encounters... Um, the, uh, the Hispanic woman, her name's Maria Hernandez, in the garage. Um, he pulls out a gun and um, shoots her and she uh, puts her hands up You know when she sees the gun and the bullet ricochets off her keychain. Wow. Um, saving, ultimately saving her life but she feigns that she's dead and falls to the floor in the garage. Richard then goes through the garage and into the kitchen of this condo apartment and there's uh, Dale Onizaki Um, she's actually hiding behind uh, um, some cupboards and he just walks over and and kills her Um, shot her in the forehead actually Um, and leaves and one hour later he's in a neighboring city Monterey Park he pulls a, a young woman out of her car and shoots her twice in the head killing her another Asian woman um flees the scene. both of these incidents got a lot of media coverage and um because the one woman uh Hernandez, survived, they had a pretty good idea uh that they were somehow linked mm-hmm. um, he you know continues his crime spree uh you know, killing a man, leaving his wife uh alive while he rapes her. And um, in one of these early crime scenes, he actually leaves a set of um, footprints behind. And the footprints are very distinguished as being belonging to a uh, kind of shoe called an avia. Um, yeah, yeah, I had a mirror. So, you know, this is like one of those Hardy Boy things, you know, the police see the shoe print, and they actually did a cast of it. And um, it, it, it kind of became a key piece of evidence because this, this particular brand of shoe and this particular size of shoe, um, there, was, there was only, um, I think, a dozen of them sold. They also had uh, twenty-two caliber bullets that matched the bullets that they found at the scene of these crimes uh, in, in Rosemead and Monterey Park. So, there's, you know, they're starting to be able to kind of like put a lot of this together. Um, and, you know, in, in, in instances, this is a real long answer to your question, Burl, but in, in one instance, he, um, you know, he tells a woman uh, that he's going to uh, kill her unless she pledges her life to fate, And so she, so she does, and he lets her go. In another case, he, you know, goes into a house and uses a tire iron to beat the hell out of this. a teenage girl, um, you know, severely mutilating her. Uh, and, uh, she, you know, doesn't die. And, in fact, after he's beaten the hell out of her with this tire iron, He thinks she's dead, and then she gasps and kind of comes back to life, and he thinks that um, this is Jesus intervening in a war that, you know, Richard as Satan is carrying out against Jesus.
3: So did that Um, interference in his mind of uh, God in that killing, did that make him, the devil, feel like he had to finish it, or did that
1: stop him? In that particular case, he ran away it didn't it didn't stop him because he continued you know i mean that was probably halfway through this crime scene and i want you to think about this the the woman in her kitchen dale uh this is this killing happened in march of 85 and um by august so we'll just you know just a few months later um five months later actually he's committed uh, at least a dozen homicides and uh, um another dozen assaults um
0: I mean, the guy is relentless, but he's also sloppy. Well,
1: yeah, he is sloppy, but so so are some of the people involved in the investigation. Really? Um, for example, uh, because these crimes occurred across multiple jurisdictions, in a lot of instances, the homicide detectives wouldn't share their information with their counterparts oh. in other uh, bureaus. So <laughs> it took, you know, several weeks for the police to actually link a lot of the... Of their investigation.
0: Now wait a second. Um, back back up just a minute, there, Frank. You mean th- because it's different jurisdictions, they were holding on to their information instead of sharing it? Yep. That yep, doesn't make any. That doesn't yep. make any crime buster sense to me.
1: You know, this is how detectives work and do work still. There's that one, always that one key piece of information that only the killer holds, and. Um, you know, there are detectives who believe that if that piece of information were to, you know, somehow get out into the public domain, that it would kill their case. And by the way, I'm going to tell you an instance in this story where that actually happened. All right, please do. Um, but but first, I'll tell you that it was a guy at the coroner's office who pieced this all together. So, you know, they're bringing these bodies into the coroner's office, and most of them have been shot with small caliber Um, uh, weapons, and uh, a lot of the mutilation is similar. So he grabs the sheriff homicide detective and says, you know, we've got all these murders and you've got all these agencies investigating them. I'm going to tell you, based on my experience and what I see here in the coroner's office, that you have one killer out there. Uh, That comment led to the creation of a task force to, to find the Night Stalker.
3: It's it's interesting. I'm sorry.
0: Chris has a question or comment.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that a lot. Where it'll be like uh, some secretary or some uh, uh, DNA analyst uh, that puts it to connects all these cases, as opposed to teams of detectives. Sometimes they'll be the one that says, "I think these cases are connected." You know. So it's uh, it's interesting
1: that happened here. And you're right, it does happen that way. And this this particular coroner's investigator happens to be a a really smart guy. Um, His name is Scott Carrier. uh, And uh, he'd been at the coroner's department a long time. Um, He'd also worked on the Hillside Strangler Task Force. So he'd seen, you know, um, the serial killing and had a a, a familiarity with um, some of the hallmarks of it. Mm -hmm. So... uh, he was able to kind of get past the tunnel vision of detectives in Glendale or Monterey Park or, um, you know, some of the smaller communities where they were like, we're not sharing this. We're going to find this guy on our own. Yeah. They want the credit
0: for it.
3: Yeah. I was about to say, does it boil down to competition kind of like we want to be the ones to, to nab the guy or is it some, some other,
1: it's probably, I mean, it's probably that and a lot of other things in politics, you know, this is a safe town, and we've got safe detectives, and they're going to, you know, take care of us type of thing. I'm sure it's a lot of that.
0: You know what I find um, especially fascinating about that is the fire departments are exactly the opposite. They share everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, they do. That is a, as a reporter, that's one of the first things you learn is when you go to a crime scene, talk to a fire department. Or talk to the coroner.
0: Yeah. Because well, they they share everything. I mean, they, the communication between the different fire departments in L.A. County is incredible, but not between the police departments.
1: Well, I, I, that it's been that way. It will be that way. And of course, it, you know, in the, in its current iteration, the sheriff's department isn't getting along with anybody. <laughs> um, you know, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and LAPD has always been in for. And you can take a lot of this all the way back to the 1940s when, you know, the sheriff patrolled the Sunset Strip and the LAPD patrolled, you know, Mohawk Bend, right? But we won't go there right now. We'll just we'll just say that mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, uh, competition among police departments. An interesting
2: uh, an interesting side note here: when I worked for the for Labida, LAPD, LAPD, um, there was tremendous cooperation. At the federal and international level, um, uh, when I was doing the year 2000 conversion uh, for them, we, uh, we had to uh, deal with uh, Surte and Mossad, uh, Scotland Yard, of course the FBI, Justice Department. We all had um, connections. Uh, through the computers, and you could do inquiries into their system. But uh, I don't remember other than Cal Justice. I don't remember any other uh, local, you know. Strange. Um,
1: yeah, I mean that's just. It, I think it's just competitive nature of little you know, local cops. But let me tell you, there's there is something that happened in this case, uh, and you'll remember I mentioned the shoes. After Scott Carrier put this all together, and they formed a task force, there was a lot of heat on the Night soccer. A lot. So he flees Los Angeles and goes up to San Francisco, kills the guy, and uh, essentially solves the guy's wife, leaving her for death. He's at the crime scene, and he does a a pentagram and leaves a note uh, behind, making it pretty clear that this is the guy that was working in L.A., and now he's up in San Francisco. Mm. L.A. detectives meet with their counterparts in San Francisco, and um, they say hey um what did you find the guys in san francisco say well uh we've got a shoe print and so the la detectives say hey okay we've got a shoe print too as soon as they tell the san francisco detectives that the san francisco detectives relay that information to mayor diane feinstein who holds a press conference and announces that not only is this killer linked to the case in la but uh they've also got evidence of him wearing the same shoes at many crimes they had Shoe print of, of his uh, from one of the crimes in L.A., and now they've got a shoe print of his from this crime scene in San Francisco.
0: If I was him, I'd change my shoes.
1: Yeah, you know, he was listening. To, he was listening to the the news, and he went to the Golden Gate Bridge, took those shoes off, and threw them over the side. Wow. So the eleven and a half obvious sneakers were was one key piece of evidence tying Richard Ramirez to uh, a couple of crime scenes. Uh, a gun that was used at many is now gone thanks to the sharing of the information
3: by. What was the atmosphere like here in Los Angeles when these murders were going down? Were uh, people locking their doors? Were they a little more cautious? Was there a palpable sense of fear going around LA?
1: Great question. Absolutely. The media, I, you know, take yourself back to 85. There's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. I mean, this is a given. Um, the media was all over this case. It led, you know, it, it led the six o'clock. It led the eleven o'clock. It was, uh, you know, in the newspaper every day. Um, that the mugshot that I told you about, the composite drawing that they had done up, uh, accompanied most of the stories. And um, at that time, LA had two daily, two major daily newspapers: the, uh, the LA Times and the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Um, plus the San Gabriel Valley Tribune was a you know a, a large uh, paper of you know 150,000 circulation and between the three of them they were running that story every day um, interestingly enough between the three of them they also had come up with you know uh the different names for the uh, the serial killer the, the San Gabriel Valley Tribune and the um, Channel 4 him the Valley Intruder and it uh the Los Angeles Times uh, called him a, a, a crime suspect, whereas the Los Angeles serial examiner uh, famously came up with the name The Night Stalker.
2: There was another well, uh, California serial killer with that but they didn't
1: call him, you mean the original Night Stalker? Yeah. The, the Golden State, golden
2: State Killer. Uh, the,
1: yeah, the Golden State Killer. But they didn't call him The Night Stalker then. Uh, they they didn't, I don't even think they, they knew all those Golden State killings were linked. At that time, but they knew that Richard Ramirez was linked to a bunch of stuff. And the Herald Examiner uh, was famous for 105-point type headlines, um, you know, that uh, screamed across, you know, bold-strip headlines across the front page. Said, you know, "Night Stalker, Night Stalker," um, and people were scared. I, I may have mentioned this early on, but uh, you know, hot summer. Uh, in LA, there's not a, at this time, there's not a lot of people that have central air, um, but families, there are families who, uh, you know, locked their house up tight, bolted the windows, bought guns, put bars on the windows. And even the family of one of the detectives, uh, his, his Gil uh, Carrillo, uh, who lived in, at that time in the San Gabriel Valley, his wife said, listen, when you're out at night investigating these crimes, I'm scared to death. I'm not staying here. I'm going to go and live with my parents until you catch this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, it. so when you say palpable, it's palpable down to a granular level. And, uh, there's nobody, it, 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 there's nobody who is here then who doesn't remember, you know, those five to six months of, is this guy going to come, come in through my door? It was, uh, it was frightening. It, we talked a little bit about him too. And, uh, You know, he was uh, a Satanist who um, believed that he was harvesting souls for his afterlife by doing these killings. Um, He was a huge fan of uh, ACDC. And um, it's interesting that the name Night Stalker was chosen for him because ACDC had a song called The Night Prowler. It's, it's a really, it's, it's actually a song about, a, you know, a guy who's uh, prowling uh, like an army man uh, and killing people.
2: I seem to remember Angus uh, referring to it um, as teenage angst and, you know, trying to sneak in to see his girlfriend at night.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it could be. I, it's, I tell you, you've got to listen to it. when you, If you're listening to this podcast or you guys there, you know, when you go home, put it on your, you know, find your musical device, Spotify or whatever, and listen to it, it is like, I mean, you can imagine this guy driving around at night mm-hmm. in the 80s, getting jacked, and by the way, he's a crackhead, he's getting jacked up on crack, he's playing this ACDC album over and over again with the Night Prowler on it, and he's, he's out killing people, and you know, a lot of his victims were Asian mm-hmm.
0: women. Well, that's because um, of what he saw when he was a kid. Yeah.
1: Yep, it's all—it's all you know. You can see all the like threads, right? Was was he <laughs> one of the
3: early uh, serial killers that uh, the FBI used as part of their behavioral analyst uh, program? You know, when they first started, they interviewed a lot of these. Uh, uh, was he one of them? So, do you know?
1: So, so he's a little bit after those guys. Okay. Um, and a lot of those guys were um, like highly organized, and Richard Ramirez is high. Like, would be classified as a highly disorganized while some of the victims shared similarities a lot of them were different he would you know they you know he told the detectives that he would just basically drive around looking for open windows and uh that would be or you know or unlock doors and when he found them that would be his you know the beginning of what he would do
2: we can uh, we can play what if here. As early in his uh, in air quotes career, he was working at a hotel where he was used his pass key to go into uh, um, hotel rooms and steal from them. And in one particular instance, uh, husband came uh, into the room to find him trying to rape his wife and beat the living crap out of him. And the only reason he got he's he wasn't arrested. Prosecuted as the couple lived out of state, and refused to come back to L.A. and testify.
0: Weird. That so if they had if right they had there. come
2: back, he might have gone to jail, and a lot of this could have been averted.
1: It's a you it, uh, know it's just a it's a weird thing. It, it ends up being that uh, um, the police are able to uh, find a fingerprint, and, um, and they didn't have California was just. Going inst- was just in the process of instituting a you know a computerized fingerprint database, and um, so they got this fingerprint, and the Sheriff's detectives decide, Well, we'll run this fingerprint through the you know the nascent database and uh and see if we get something, and they do, and they get Richard who, as Mark just noted, has an arrest record. Uh, At the end of August, police uh, put this photo of Richard Ramirez uh, out to the media, and uh, it's on the front page of the Herald Examiner, and the front page of the San Diego Valley Tribune, when Ramirez walks into a liquor store uh, in East L.A. and sees his picture uh, linking him Um, to the crimes. And about the same time, he sees this picture. So do people in the store. He ran. He fled from the store. And as he fled from the store, a couple of women ran after him, shouting "El Matador! El Matador! The murderer! The killer!" And um, he tried to steal a car from a guy's driveway. And well, at that point, you know, don't mess with East LA because he literally had the <laughs> he had the crap beat out of him.
2: I got a, I got a fabulous question for you, Frank, from a philosophical sure. position. He's, uh, these men chased him across the freeway, corralled him, beat the crap out of him, and held him down for police. Can you imagine that happening now?
1: Yes, actually, I can.
2: Was with so much publicity around why or who the person is, and you know, I, I just think it would be really difficult to get people to to jump into action like that these days.
1: So I, I think well first let me so I mean I break it down though. So one, the who the person is then, when he's the night stalker when well, we don't know who he is and all we have is this really scary drawing of this, you know, god awful no monster. It it's pretty scary. But when he's identified with a fingerprint as Richard Ramirez and you see him in person is this gangly drug addict he's he can barely escape a couple of elderly old women Chasing him out of a liquor store um, I, I think that that And you know it's him You gotta like You gotta put yourself into that mindset Like this is the guy that terrorized your entire city this summer And here he is trying to You know Like grab your wife Or grab your car And you and your buddies are out there He's fucked And I don't care if it's like 85 or twenty twenty. Man, you come into, my, come into my neighborhood in East L.A. and you call this kind of shit, you're
3: fucked. India, say a guy is accused of sexually assaulting a woman or various crimes in the community, the community will literally drag him from his home <laughs> and uh, beat them and then turn them over to the cops. So I think it's definitely something that's still, you know, maybe not in America, but in some other places, they're like, let us get our hands on him first. Then the we'll ju- the cor-
1: oh, turn them over to you. It, it's, it's a really, it's just a crazy, you know, I mean, it was a crazy, crazy ending to a crazy story.
3: no. Um, when he went on trial, uh did they have the trial here in l a county?
1: Yeah, the trial was here in l a county, and it was a very lengthy trial and it lasted uh, at least a year and a half, maybe two years uh, at one point, uh, there was a juror that was, sh- was shot to death jeez and, wow um, and and you know and and that put the, you know that scared the hell out of the other jurors. Um, Was there any connection between that and the the case? No. No, but, you know, at the time, everybody thought there was.
3: I wonder how they were able to find uh, a a jury they could all agree on, an unbiased jury, you know?
0: Was there any attempt at a change
1: of venue? Yes, but he had these attorneys who were... um, you know, bound and determined to uh, you know find any loophole that they could to get him out from under it. Uh, and, and, and 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 Richard kind of loved the publicity. You know, he would uh, bare his teeth at reporters and members of the jury. He uh, came to court uh, on more than one occasion with a pentagram drawn on his hand, and then he would show it to the cameras as they you know uh, flashed away. Um, he, you know, this was kind of uh, the pinnacle of of his crime spree. and and he became such a celebrity uh, as a result of this lengthy trial that um, you know, women began to.
0: Oh, yeah, no. Not
1: just write him letters, but, you know, propose marriage and all sorts of other things.
0: Uh, oh,
3: I've
1: these seen, uh,
0: women must have been really sick.
3: I've seen a lot of video, uh where he would do in- interviews for the local press there. It almost seemed like he was there talking about some great new product he had <laughs> invented as opposed to murder trials. Yeah, he
1: was, uh, you know, he reveled in the murder. Uh, and-, and even when he died... Uh, He was engaged to, like, you know, I mean, a young woman who was, you know, many years younger than him. Um, And uh, people were just, uh, women especially were just fascinated with his, um, I don't know if he had a charisma or a magnetism. His killer
0: charm. uh, Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was the same
2: with Bundy. Women thought he was just hot. Yeah, yeah. Yep. There's an actual medical okay. term uh, for uh, people that gravitate toward uh, serial killers and uh, murderers. It's called nuts. No. <laughs> and I'm going to pronounce it uh, incorrectly, but it's uh, uh, hybrostophilia. Oh. Really?
0: Yeah. Sounds like a hydroplane.
2: <laughs> well, I know. Hydro usually involves water. but Yeah. What is it about people that go for
3: somebody that's locked up? Is it because there's only... There's a protection there uh, where you can't get hurt, right?
2: Uh, you know, because it's... You're young. can <clears> tell. <throat> women don't see who you are. They see who they want you to be. Ah. But
1: so let's, not, let's not generalize.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, there's always this uh, underlying, I can fix him. him.
3: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh,
2: that makes sense.
1: Yeah, there's probably—I mean—that's that, probably some element of the psychology of the women who, you know, had a had a thing for Richard. There's probably some part of it. But I mean, there's also like you know the whole there's.
0: But maybe uh, fame by association.
1: I mean, well, there's probably some of that. I know one—I know his fiancé was a writer. Um, there's also probably you know people. There are people who are fascinated with the occult and Satanism. And, uh,
0: the thing is that uh, real Satanists saying. don't believe in Satan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, the guy's a he, fake Satanist.
1: But, uh, I, well, I mean, okay, uh, yeah, yes, Earl, he's a fake Satanist, but he's not a fake Satanist in his mind. That's true. He's, you know, he's he's uh, he's brought up in a very uh, uh, strict religious Catholic environment, and. Um, you know, with and all the accompanying sort of uh, pantheon of uh, of saints and um, and idols and and magic that goes with that, especially when uh, you know you you. Yeah, I mean, we all know about the uh, the sort of magic beliefs that uh, are Santeria and um, and those things. And there's a right. very you know, in in some cultures there's a very strong uh, dichotomy between, you know, those things that are good like Jesus and those things that are evil like Satan and uh, it's just like a magnet, you know, you can be on the North Pole or the South Pole and, you know, and he chose his pole. And I think there there are people who um, are attracted to that because that's the pole that they've chosen. Um, Whether, you know, Right, we're not talking about Anton LeBay. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about people who you know believe in magic and spells, and, and you know, I want to say ignorant, but um,
0: superstitious. You know, it,
1: it's, it's superstitious. Yeah, you know, you just it, it, and you know it's it's not limited to a single culture. It's you know it could be in any culture, uh, and that I think is what's the, the pull with him.
0: Yeah, plus he was. I mean, he was damaged in shipping and handling in a certain degree that goes back to his cousin. And his,
1: father, yeah. of yeah, and
0: his father, of course. Yeah, his
1: father, of course, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, the cousin's showing him those polarized, You know, I mean... There's a, there's a good... There's this... I'm fascinated with this author named Philip Carlo, And um, he's a true crime author. He's... I, I think he's dead. Um, he wrote... What is really the definitive book on the Night Stalker? It's five or six hundred pages. He did his research um, extensively, and uh, it, and if you want to learn more about it, it would be it's a good book to read. And by the way, Philip Carlo also wrote some of the best mob biographies you you could ever read. Uh, one about uh, James Gaspipe uh, Casso, uh, who was an underboss in the Lucchese family in New York. Uh, this guy, like, was not a trained journalist, not a trained writer. Um, just had a, a, a knack for uh, uh, telling a good story. And man, it's a stemwinder the one that he wrote about the Night Stalker. Uh, it's a really good book. And um, you know, like I can say—I mean, I, I didn't start my career in journalism until two years after the Night Stalker was captured. I lived here. And um, I was in the Herald Examiner newsroom, you know, throughout the trial and subsequently to that, you know, other stuff. But the way this guy tells the story is just great. Show should buy that book. No, and then buy all of my books too. I
0: was going to say you've got a best-selling true crime book yourself right now.
2: (laughs) Might that be uh, burned? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, burned. Burns is doing well.
1: Um, no, can but, we get you know, that on? Yeah, same time in L- about the same time in uh, on the LA timeline, he uh, burns the story of a, a Glendale fire captain who was also a serial arsonist.
0: Oh, I'm, and,
1: I'm so um, fascinated by that story.
0: It is a fascinating story. <laughs> it's,
1: it's a wild story, and he's a wild guy. I've interviewed him extensively, um, he, both as a fire captain and as a prisoner. So, wow! That's, yeah, I've, known him, I've known him throughout a lot of his career.
3: You
0: no, know, that
1: book uh, is out. Oh,
0: yeah, it's available
1: right
3: I now. I will be ordering uh, it on Amazon. That uh, I love that story. There's I- a,
2: uh, another fabulous book written by our guest, uh, "Betrayal in Blue." Oh, brilliant book! Brilliant book. Oh, by the way, uh, <laughs> our our host, there, Burl Bear, uh, was also involved sorry, in uh, this fabulous awesome tome. Yeah,
0: Betrayal in Blue, that yeah. is a uh, a fascinating book. It was fascinating to write. And I think uh, Frank had the, the rare uh, <laughs> blessing of having uh, Adam Diaz, who was head of the Dominican Drug Cartel, hmm. call him on the phone <laughs> for an interview to make sure that he was portrayed properly in the book. Or else.
1: Right. Adam's, Adam's a nice guy. Yeah, he That's is great. a very nice a, guy. He, he, yeah, and he uh, he's super cooperative with us. Um, uh, this this story, by the way, is about New York cops who were um, drug dealing and um, running, you know, uh, game as bodyguards for the Colombians in New York during the eighties. Uh, and actually, actually in Brooklyn and in a bad ass Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, so I would I, I love Betrayal in Blue because we Burl and I worked with Ken Urell, who is one of the bad cops.
0: Yeah, that and, was that uh, was amazing to actually have the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD work with us on the book. <laughs> yeah, and that was fabulous. Is that and the, the, and
1: the and the thing about Ken is that he's totally open about his you know career as a, a bad guy, and and he's he's remorseful. You know, he's remorseful too. He, I think that it Ken uh, think believes that had he not you know, gone down this, you know, pathway with his partner, Mike Dowd, that, uh, you know, he, maybe he wouldn't have been remembered as the second most corrupt cop in New York. Maybe he'd be remembered as, some, uh, as a hero.
3: Is there a Netflix uh, doc- Netflix documentary about that case? Yes.
1: Uh, yeah. Yes, there is. Yeah, it's called it's called the uh, the, seven it's called the Seven
3: Five. That's right. I saw uh, that, and that was amazing. So I well, I'll tell you one book. thing:
0: that there's a difference between the documentary and the book. Yes, I want to read the book. <laughs> and the the documentary gives the impression that Ken Urell uh, ratted out his partner, which he didn't. Mm-hmm. But that's the impression given in the documentary. In the book, we tell the accurate true story of what actually happened, which he didn't write about at all. So uh
3: I think these Netflix documentaries you know- are helping a lot because some of these cases <laughs> but you know what I mean we're getting a different perspective as opposed to just the cost perspective or the law enforcement's perspective.
1: That's a good documentary because it you know, it, 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 they talk to all the players and, they, and bring them to life and they bring that era to life. Um, the, the thing about our book, though, is that we're able to really hone in on a little bit deeper on the players like Adam and, um, and Ken. Uh, because, you know, we've, Ken, this is really interesting. None of this came up in that documentary, but Ken is a diarist. And he, he's a meticulous note-keeper, and all throughout um, his career as a police officer, he kept notes. He kept copious notes. with uh, I think with the intent of writing a book, um, certainly uh, having you know all these things for his memory, uh, which, by the way, I'm going to tie this back to Burnt, because uh, the, the fire captain, John Orr, uh, wanted to... Uh, be an author. He wanted to be like Joseph Lombaugh, hmm. um, only you know, writing from the persp- instead of writing from the perspective of you know, um, the, uh, the choir boys, or the, or, onion uh, field. Yeah, or the onion field, he's writing from the perspective of a firefighter. And um, he wrote a what he called a fictional book about a fire that occurred in South Pasadena, California, that resulted in the death of um, three people. Uh, He changed the number of people that were killed in the fire, to four, but uh, described, uh, you know, who these people were in... uh, I'm sorry, he changed it to five, it was four, uh, described in great detail uh, some things that only a person who was there when the fire started would have known.
0: Tipping his hand somewhat. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, he did tip it. So so he wanted to be Joe Wamba, and Joe Wamba got in touch with him and... uh, uh, actually uh, did a book on him too. Joe Wambaugh's book is not as good as mine because uh, what I have is not just uh, John's actual recollections but also John's daughter, Lori uh, Kovac, who co-wrote the book and uh, she's also a diarist and kept great notes about her life uh, growing up with a dad who she looked at as a hero and um, only in later years after she testified at his death penalty trial, did she realize that maybe her dad wasn't such a hero after all?
2: Well,
0: that must have been wow. an emotional so,
1: break. I mean, for her, it, uh, you know, it came slowly. You know, she, her story is interesting. She has a daughter um, who has some uh, uh, some mental illness and... Uh, and Lori wanted to find out if you know this was a heredity, uh, you know maybe inherited from her dad. And so she asked her dad, uh, "Hey, you know, can you help me with this?" And her dad flipped out and said, "There's no, no reason for you to believe that I'm the source of any of this. Uh, I don't, I'm not mentally, I'm not mentally ill. I'm innocent. I'm here uh, because uh, they got the wrong guy." Oh yeah, they got and, the wrong uh, guy. All right, Frank,
2: uh, miss you in the studio. It's always fun to chat. I gotta ask you, how
0: come you you sound so good? You got a microphone?
1: I'm sitting in front of, uh, I've I've got a set of Bose headphones and I've got a really great Audio-Technica
2: mic here. Oh, very nice. Sounds wonderful. (laughs) Thanks for (laughs) joining us. Look forward to talking to you again. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic, Matt, Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Lighten of Louds on LR Radio
0: Live.com.